Hello, welcome to Beer in a Movie, the podcast where we combine two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to wash the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I am one of your co-hosts, Carlos Cooper, with me as always, Joe Hilliard and Dave Gurney. And we are going to do what it is that we do here and we are going to waste no time Get doing that beer it. in the glass. Yes. That's right. Um, this is exciting. We're, we're doing a fun episode today. Um, you know, we, we, I'll let uh, others expand on that in a moment. But to get us in the right state of mind and really the right nation state in the world, uh, we're going to take on a beer from Germany. This is actually only our, what is it, third, third. German beer um, that we've had. And we're actually revisiting, right? Because I think this was one of the other... One of our German beers was from this brewery. I'll, Joe's going to look sure. into this. I, I, sh- I shouldn't throw curveballs like that at him. But it's fine. This, <laughs> this is why Hestefaner, a German brewery that has been around for a very long time. And I even thought I had the date here. Yes, yeah, since 1040. Oh, oh my gosh. When you go back that far, <laughs> that, that is there, there's some bona fides. Almost a thousand years. Th- that's right. I mean, I guess if we keep doing this until 2040, we'll have to do like a special celebration episode for the millennium of yeah. beer there. Yeah. Um, that's crazy. Yeah, it is. So they were around even before there were beer purity laws, I believe. This is pre Reinhutzkabat beer, but, uh, but one that follows it. Oh. It is their Hefeweiss beer. Uh, that they are very well known for, a Hefeweizen, uh, as you would expect. So a, a wheat beer that uses that special Hefeweizen yeast that tends to produce sort of more, more um, you know, fruity, and in particular banana kind of notes to, yeah. to the nose and, and even in the flavor. Um, it's unfiltered usually, so it's kind of an OG hazy. I think we've even made that joke before with Hefeweizen. Hefeweizen's the OG haze. Yeah. So um, we're going to have like the OG OG yeah. haze on, on this first half of the episode today. Pretty wild. Uh, Joe, do you have some stats? We had the uh, Polliner. Polliner. So this is our first entree into okay. this brewery, and then we had Wonderful. the uh, Anger uh, dop- the, the Doppelbach. Yes, okay. I was the that's what I was confusing. Was I thought recently. the celebrated, right? Yeah. So yeah, this is exciting. New brewery, even though it's a super old brewery. Yeah, it new is to the anything podcast. but new. New to the podcast. Um, Apropos. Yeah, and uh, not not new to the podcast, but new in the particular approach that we're taking is a director who. Uh, Truffaut claimed or was the greatest living film director at one one point early in his career around uh, Fitzcarraldo. Yeah, and we have discussed uh, Werner Herzog films before. We did Into the Abyss, which is a documentary, one of eight documentaries he's made about Death Row. Uh, when we did Just Mercy in episode seventy five, you can go back and listen to that. And we did Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, which is a remake that was not a remake of Abel Ferrara's. Bad Lieutenant. That was episode 100 in our Nicolas Cage-a-thon. But to this date, still one of my very favorite episodes. One of our finest moments, I would say. Uh, and in those episodes, you know, we talk about the man a bit about mm-hmm. Werner Herzog, uh, but they weren't director-oriented episodes, so it wasn't the focus of what. I mean, right. we you know we touch on it, but we didn't get really into it. And in my research and in my what has become an obsession with the man over the last week since we started watching these films. Um, I realized that 
understanding this man is a key part of understanding his films. And there is such lore around him. A lot of it, uh, misunderstandings and misinterpretations of him, uh, but I just think that and he, ones ones that he sometimes seems yeah, to even subterfuge. Uh, you know sometimes he leans himself. into yeah he try, yeah, he, yeah. Uh, but sometimes he will go and correct um, yeah uh, from time to time it, we'll get into that more but I I just wanted to give a brief overview of him because he is such an interesting figure and uh, has such an interesting history. Um, so we have said the man's name. Yes. Werner Herzog. Yes. Werner yeah. Herzog. Just, so just, <laughs> he did. He did. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did a couple times. At least once. Uh, so just a quick overview of Werner Herzog. He was born in Munich in 1942 in Nazi Germany. Uh, but middle of World War II. Middle, middle World, World War, II, War II. And uh, because of that, um, his mother moved him, uh, moved the family out into an isolated Bavarian village. He didn't see his first film or television or anything until he was uh, 11, 12 years old when a traveling projectionist came to his single-room schoolhouse and played two films, which he was, quote, not impressed by. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's a great origin story. (laughs) That that came directly from his mouth from a podcast called The Origins Podcast. This Uh, medium is interesting, but I think more could be done with it. (laughs) Yeah, at 11, at 11. So uh, around 14, after converting to Catholicism, he had an epiphany that he had to be a filmmaker. And so, guess what? That's what he did. Uh, so the film we're about to discuss, um, which will be synopsized later on uh, by Joe, is Signs of Life, which was released when he was only 26 years, years old. Now, an interesting fact uh, about him is that he narrowly avoided death in 1971 uh, when he was scheduled to board Lance of Flight 508, but he canceled his reservation due to a scheduling conflict and uh, took another flight. Um, that flight was struck by lightning and crashed, killing every single person on the plane except for one sole survivor who Herzog then later made a documentary about called Wings of Hope. Uh, He fluidly transitions between narrative and documentary film in a way that few, if any, directors have done to the degree of success that Herzog has. Um, Another interesting fact about him is that during the production of his film, Even Dwarves Started Small, (laughs) Herzog (laughs) promised his cast and crew that if they could finish the film without any further injuries from that point forward, he would leap into a cactus patch. The film wrapped with no more injuries being sustained, and Herzog did exactly what he said he was going to do, and he leapt into a patch of cacti. Yeah, I think as the crew and cast were begging Trying him not him, to, they, they, saying they, this is unnecessary. They said, the you point, don't yeah. have to do yeah. it, and he is any, he's a man of his word, if nothing else, and he said that you know it was more important that he fulfill his promise than it was to heed safety, safety warnings from them. Um, Herzog has often been accused of only making films that are impossible and intentionally making things more difficult on his productions than they need to be. He, however, views things differently, saying, quote, I do the doable, and that he never backs down from a challenge, which is where that misconception comes from. Um, Herzog also offers up three key pieces of advice for aspiring filmmakers. He says that they should read a lot, learn to pick locks, and learn to forge documents. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Roger Ebert says of the German director, Herzog has never created a single film that is compromised, shameful, uh, made for pragmatic reasons, or uninteresting. He e- Even his failures are spectacular. Mm. 
my final note on him is that Herzog has gone on record saying the age of film critics is over. <laughs> so I guess the three of us should fuck <laughs> off and welcome to the last episode of Beer and a Movie. Hey, <laughs> they're, 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 <laughs> what an introduction. What a, what a figure you have just Inclu- sketched for us. Including the two films that we're going to talk about today. I have seen a handful of his films, I mm-hmm. suppose. And the Grizzly Man, I think, is the one that most people have heard of if they haven't seen. It was it was definitely one that had the most but people uh, know the success story. over in the yeah. States. Yeah. Oh, and what also the film's should, about. Also, I should say that Herzog is clearly has a great eye for talent as he cast uh, Sahara star Steve Zahn in his film Rescue Dawn starring Christian Bale. Yeah, I've seen that one too, but I don't. I didn't realize at the time I was watching a Herzog film. I thought I was When watching it came it, out, I right. did not realize that. Um, so I was eager to watch these two because they're two films that I have not seen before. A glaring hole in my, you know. Same for me. Encyclopedia. Um, and, and so the first one we st- we're going to start with, his first film, his yeah. first narrative feature. It's 1968's Signs of Life. It interestingly, interestingly has one of those Wikipedia pages of people that haven't gone to it to add anything. And there's no mm-hmm. content there. Yeah. So, but it's considered one of his masterpieces primarily because it was his filmmaking debut. Yeah, and I, and I I think it it maybe has become somewhat obscured because it's probably his third film or second that. We're going to be talking about the third film in the second half. We're skipping over Even Dwarf Started Small, which which Carlos did reference. That was the second film, um, which I think Even Dwarfs having its the concept right, only casting little people, ha- having it be kind of set in this strange environment that very unique to the film, got it some notoriety. Um, but the but the third film and, and the pairing there with the star with I don't want to sort of steal our thunder in the second half. Um, I think kind of eclipsed it. And, and ever since then, I think he's done other work that has right. kind of gotten more notoriety. But Signs of Life, even in its moment, was celebrated. Uh, yeah, you know, it, was it, it was it big was time, and, and most notably for this immersion of this new German filmmaker. Right. And I think retrospectively, it continues to be celebrated because you can look back on it and see a filmmaker who almost came out fully formed. Like he, this not to spoil too much about it, but the kind of tone and pace that he uses and his fixation on madness became such a through line throughout his career that the fact that those things are all so clearly present right out of the gate has made... Yeah, the synopsis of this film is pretty easy, although I Mm -hmm. think that the film, we we could probably spend an hour on it alone. Um, During World War II, three Germans... It's a a black and white film, 1968. It's shot in 3-4... Three German soldiers are withdrawn from combat when one of them is wounded. That character's name is Strocek. Am I saying that correctly? Y- yeah, I mean Strocek? it's Strocek. It look. Strocek. I mean it's S T R O S Z E K. But I. Th- but when they say it, it sounds like Strocek. Or, he, yeah, Strocek. he is assigned to a small coastal community on the Greek island of Kos mm-hmm. with two other soldiers who are kind of recuperating in their own way. Uh, he marries a Greek girl we, we, that happens prior to the film so it's the four of them living in this f- military fortress that was actually built in the 1500s uh, or so um, what we see is that the island of Kos not much happens and these three guys <laughs> after they kind of get get done with the busy work that was assigned to them you know just to keep the place habit, habitable habitable what am I trying to say? Habitable, habitable. thank you <laughs> uh 
Strocek, Strocek begins to go mad in the utter inanity and day-to-day nothingness and boredom and tedium yeah. of recuperating in, a, in not his own land, not his own place, with nothing to do. Yeah. That's this very, very brief synopsis. Yeah. That's a fair, fair synopsis. I think it gets it gets the point. Though when you say he goes mad, it's it, it's almost more like a switch going off at a certain yeah. point rather than like a gradual. It, not, not that your right. synopsis does any, but I don't want to leave anybody with the impression like you're watching a film where you're seeing a man sure. deteriorate. That that's kind of what I thought going into it, and I I had to press pause for a brief moment uh, to like get up and let dilly back in or something like that you know yeah. I, had, I had to get up open a door close it and come sit back down mm-hmm. um and i realized how much time had passed and he still seemed pretty normal <laughs> and it's, I, I think it was like an hour and five Isn't minutes in crazy and it's an hour and a half it's like a 93 yeah. minute film and i was i had less than a half an hour left right. i think and i was like huh because I was expecting that gradual kind of yeah. you know, decline thing. or cues or yeah. we the audience are seeing. Oh, yeah, which doesn't really happen. And I mean, there's a lot of in. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things going on with this movie. I mean, one thing you know, again, since we're talking about his first film, that I think is notable is just like how beautifully shot a lot of this is. Cannot argue, man. Like it's a great setting. I mean, he's on this island shooting, and it seems like anywhere he points the camera is just beautiful landscape but even even these moments where like um there's a moment where it's like a kind of tunnel thing out of the fortress um okay like an art like a a hallway archway kind of thing that's like inside and outside at the same time and it you're looking out at the bright well-lit beach community that is cost and just the way that it's i mean the background is kind of blown out a little bit but the part that the subject is actually moving through it's just it's it's lit perfectly it looks super crisp yeah Yeah, it's everything about it i mean visually and you know so in that first hour 45 the first half you know however you want to classify it you're seeing their day-to-day goings on uh they 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 meet a a gypsy comes to knock on the door a king they have they have a, (laughs) a a vignette with this person uh, they paint the walls. They paint the doors. Mm-hmm. They they make a, traps a, for cockroaches. Yeah, they make yeah, one of the engineers. <laughs> guy's clearly an engineer. He makes <laughs> yeah, a better mouse trap for cockroaches because yeah. and it's it's what they're filling their lives with. The what we do while we're awake. You know. Yeah. Um, the other thing that you see, I think it's interesting, is a, and this is where you begin to get film school into this film, and I think this film gives you a lot of meat to do that with, is uh, relationships with animals. They procure a chicken so that they can have some eggs. Mm-hmm. They uh, a goat that doesn't produce any milk. Right. right. They, the, the flies, even they have an interaction with flies where they, they where the characters in that moment are talking about how it's unethical to capture and imprison a fly. Mm-hmm. While they remain not captured, but but essentially which captured. imprisoned <laughs> yeah, in this inanity. Right. That, from a right. from a production standpoint, incredible that they were able to trap a fly in that thing and have it come out on camera. Yeah, yeah, no, insane. Yeah. <laughs> he does the undoable, he, though it is the doable he, once he's he done does it. The yeah. doable, <laughs> um, no, you're right. Even the is it a mule or a donkey at the donkey. Uh, end? It's okay, a donkey, the donkey. Yeah. yeah, which which is kind of a troubling scene. And I think if if people have animal sensitivities, be noted. You do see 
dead animal carcass being Peter uh, has to have a problem with him I feel cuz uh, there's a probably. lot of animals in a lot of his stuff. We'll talk about it in the yeah, next as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've you're been, right. I've you're been right. Noticing the, this about him. And this was pre I mean Are the lizards I, we're the gonna I don't want to make it too long of a tangent, but my understanding, and I should really know but more than I say, is that Apocalypse Now was something of a watershed moment for ethical treatment of animals on sets that sure. some people seeing the cow scene in that uh, set them off. And ever since then it's been a little bit more tightly watched. I'm which sure was, there were which people was influenced even by our second then. film, so it fits into this that's episode. That's right. That's right. Um but then there then there's that critical moment uh of, of him, hill. him going mad. He's up on a hill. He's yeah. he's requested that they get an assignment. So the guy that's giving the orders gives him a bullshit assignment to go mm-hmm. over there and do a thing. To patrol. Yeah. And they come over this crest where there's this sea of of windmills. Mm-hmm. And the music is this janky kind of calliope, this mm-hmm. jaunty kind of calliope. And you pan the shot of these windmills and close-ups of the windmills and close-ups of their faces and long shots of the windmills and long shots of the soldiers when our, our friend Strosek grabs his weapon and just starts going crazy and then has to be, you know, subdued by his, his co-soldier. Yeah. And then Mine from hearted. there, the movie takes a turn. Oh, yeah, for sure. That, that's the breaking point moment, right? And, yeah. the, and then shortly after that, um, Strosek just, you know, th- goes mad and, and, and believes that, uh, you know, the people he's with are conspiring against him and that he needs to defend the yeah. fort against them. Because Meinhard says that they're going to send him home. Right. And then well, that's when he learns that Shrosh- they have gone to the commanding officers and, yeah. to kind of say ratted this guy's him. going nuts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, had, had ratted him out yeah. about the incident on the hill. And so he goes inside and grabs his rifle and chases right. his two friends and his wife, and his wife. Uh, out of the fortress. Uh, <laughs> yes. Who, what, an, what an interesting relationship that is with that wife. Um, I, th- from the very beginning, I, I thought about that. Yeah. I was like, well, did she... Is she good? Is she down with this? Does she actually like? You know? <laughs> yeah, she she barely has any lines. Barely in, has any lines in, in yeah. the film, um, and, and I believe it's the only film she ever did. So really? you know, I, I don't think this was like a professional actress yeah, looking a, for screen know. stardom. I think it was just a Someone convenience her. thing that. Uh, did we mention that they are, have a fortress of munitions, and that one of the things they've begun to do to kind of kill time is to create create fireworks, fireworks. bottle rockets, fireworks. Right. aerial fireworks with the gunpowder. Their that's main available. purpose for being. They say it. The narrator says it at the beginning. Who is that? Is that Stroshek that is the narrating? I don't think I don't so. Think no, it it's like a third person um, narrator. Yeah, yeah. It says that the main reason they're at this fortress is to guard these munitions that don't work with their uh, artillery. Right. They can't actually use them. But, but it's important to keep it yeah. from, I guess, the Greeks. Other people, yeah, right? That yeah, that may want to revolt might, against yeah, them. Yeah. And so, they, yeah, they're just sitting on all this, like, gunpowder and Right. Munitions. So if he, if he really went nuts, so they have to be careful, right? Like, yeah. once he has control, chased them out, taking control of the fort, if they were to invade just willy-nilly... He could set them, you know, we would he imagine a fire yeah. and then they would, you know, it would make a huge explosion in, in big problems. So there, yeah. so there's like a touchy situation there towards the end that they actually have to deal with and try to figure out um, 
how they're going to manage. But as you guys were saying, I mean, th- this is an interesting slow build of a film. Very, I had never very, seen this very before. slow build. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've definitely been uh, a fan of Herzog's for a while. I saw, you know, I think I was first exposed in a film class, um, actually to the film that we're going to talk about in the second half of the episode. Followed up and saw a lot of other ones, but never kind of worked my way back to see this first one. Mm-hmm. So I thought it would be a fun opportunity, a good excuse to do it. Um, what you know, what what you were saying about the the way this is shot, the look of this film, I couldn't agree with more. It is just a stunning looking film, and and for a filmmaker who's coming out of nowhere at age twenty six with a to, stolen camera, with a stolen camera to put something together that looks this good. I mean, he was working with cinematographer Thomas Malk. Uh, who I believe he worked with on... He definitely worked with at least on the next film we're going to talk about, and I believe several other of his films throughout the 70s, maybe going into the 80s. Um, clearly, they they connected well, and the, and, the, and the imagery that he wanted, he was able to create, because you see the, these characters, like you say, Joe, they're kind of trapped. I mean, they're kind of captured, but they're also in this vast open space a lot of the time I, that just seems like limitless. I wouldn't like have minded it at all. It looks like, it looks like a gorgeous <laughs> Greek village on the, right. right on the water. Right. It would have been a beautiful dumb. place to just recuperate well, yeah, for I mean, a while. I think two of them kind of had that attitude. The other two right. soldiers. Some of them, they, they talked about boredom from time to time when they start making fireworks. Uh, what's the, the bald guy's name who was so good? Meinhard. Meinhard. Yeah, yeah, he says, oh, thank God, we've got something to do again. You yeah, know, I mean, yeah. again, the, the tedium. That guy is very, it was very good. He was fantastic. He was funny, oh, yeah. The cast was fantastic. Yeah. Um, so, sorry, so, David. No, no, that, but it, it's, it's funny to see because, yes, on the one hand, I can understand how being forced to stay on this island out of the action, right? He has joined the military. This is supposedly set during World War II, although there's very little to tell you that, that that's the case. I think I think Greek had that advantage. Right. Greece did. Yeah. Right. Now the Thank uniforms. You. Yes, right. Yeah. I but mean, that's the bulk of it. You see these guys, um, you know, being given this assignment. And so in the sense that, okay, Strocek, uh, you know, we don't really know a whole lot. Uh, about him, and maybe I'll return to that in a second. But at least as it is, he's he's being taken out of a an active war and put into this kind of holding pen. Like this is just a place to be for the time being while you're recuperating, supposedly, or whatever it is. May, we're not even fully told. Maybe when they were evaluating him after psychologically, they could detect there were things or, that were. Or maybe off they found they, three people that could. Store, uh, guard this well that could be inconvenient that, there store go. of munitions um but you know as you say for two of them it seems like okay well we'll kill some time here and you know we'll we'll translate the meals that we Greek. can make you know we'll with try the, to catch fish out of the sea we'll you know yeah we'll, we'll make the best of this and you know strangely enough those are the two that don't have female companionship but the yeah. <laughs> but the one who does seems like you know he's just very quiet and and reserved for the most part um well, if I had to spend that much time with my wife, let me tell you, I'd go crazy too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, well they, but they were still in their honeymoon period, supposedly, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm but, just kidding. No, I Sorry, know. Kylie. That she, I'm sure she knows. We, yeah. we, it, it, I, I'd like to think so. Yeah, let's let's hope. Uh, but you you see it and, it, and on the surface, it doesn't seem like it would be that torturous a scenario. And like you're saying, as you're watching it, if you've read the plot synopsis, you're thinking, well, what is it that really is driving... But... Then there is something about the kind of the, the slow pace of it. Not a whole lot happens for a long stretch of the film. These little minor scenes, partly bringing in some of that 
strange quirkiness that Herzog is known for, right? Spending a good five minutes on a character describing creating a cockroach trap and, yeah. you know, the, plotting it out and everything. Um, the the hypnotizing of the chicken and all that. And we see uh, uh, there's a, a really good scene with an appearance by Florian Frick. That's I right. Believe, as a pianist. Um, yeah, from, from Popova, who goes on to do a, to score a, a lot of the a film. great many yeah. Herzog films. Yeah. Right. That was... Uh, not the composer here, though. But, not the yeah. composer here, right. interestingly enough. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that was... Oh, that was a nice, yeah. that was a nice scene for 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 those Krautrock fans out there. Yeah. You're, you're gonna you're gonna appreciate that little There's nugget. Easter eggs every week. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I love Pubba. But seeing it kind of unfold, there is this kind of eeriness that comes after a while, where you kind of just feel this like it, it's like this pregnant slowness to it, where it's like I know this is not going to end well. Like what what is it that's going to, you know, cause it? And the fact that it's him sort of gazing out at this field of windmills that seems to turn him is just as strange as anything else in it. Like why <laughs> yeah. that? Why does that? Now, I've seen critics mention this. There is a Don Quixote connection, right? The idea right. of, you know, mm. tilting at windmills and like it, so maybe there is this kind of literary illusion going on there that uh that Herzog had in mind. It but, is one of his three tips for Aspiring read. filmmakers is to read, yeah. so I mean, it makes sense. So, so that may well be it. But you know, to just the casual viewer, I think you see that, and you're like, "Really? This is what set this guy off?" And, and then we get to the action of him taking over the fort and the the planning that goes on into how are we going to take this back? What are we going to do? Him harming a few things, you know, hitting the donkey and uh, you the know, fireworks it, display. The fireworks. Which is the only display. reason why I brought it up is because he then starts shooting off the fireworks munition that they yeah. uh, amassed. Right. right. But there's something I, a strikingly it, gorgeous nighttime scene. Yeah. It all kind of comes together in a way that works better than it should on paper. Like if you describe this film to me as you did, I would think, okay, this is going to be about like these minor born horror yeah like the yeah, psychological yeah. yeah exactly and and a lot of people have made that yeah. connection and said like oh this is kind of a precursor to the shining in a certain sense because you're watching this man isolated you know uh, doing menial tasks right like drop into this kind of psychosis that that yeah. puts him over the edge but that film you see it like sort of the degradation sure. over time and mm -hmm. and you even see the seeds early on and Jack Nicholson's performance is so overt and charismatic in, in its own way. And there's a big climactic blow up when he gets to unleash. Right. Yeah. That yeah. doesn't happen here. <laughs> no, not not in that way. You know, uh, by comparison, you know, when you see this film and uh, the the performance, I'm, I'm forgetting the actor's name. Uh, uh, Peter or something. He, he didn't do a ton of films after that. But Peter Brogel. Peter Brogel. Um, it's very restrained. I mean, even when he goes crazy, he's not as unhinged as you would think you know, yeah. maybe somewhat. The chase scene is, is pretty unhinged, and the that, that's funny. Is. Yeah, but, and again, he has the advantage of a firearm. That's yeah. true. Without that, they could have subdued him. And yeah, yeah. A, lot of, a lot of what we see during his madness is kind of from far away, because we're mostly getting the, the perspective, out, the from, perspective the town, yeah. from the town, yeah, and mm -hmm. looking up at him running around In up there and yeah, stuff yeah. and shooting off fireworks. In 1968... The context of this film, you can understand exactly why Herzog exploded onto the scene as mm -hmm. a young, new uh, uh, European filmmaker. Yeah. Um, I had trouble with this movie. Okay. Um, 
You waited this long to tell us? No, it's okay. <laughs> I was enjoying y'all's conversation. Uh, I had trouble with this movie watching it, and it, it, now that we're back in the theaters a little more often, it is because this is a film that requires attention. This is a film mm. that should not be paused. This is a film you should see in a theater where you should you don't want to get up even to I'm go sorry that I paused. <laughs> I didn't mean it. The pausing that I had to do when I was watching those first 35, 40 minutes prevented me from being able to get into the flow of this film. Yeah. And then when you finally begin to see action, it, it, it's you're detached from it because you didn't just live in the real time presented by the filmmaker's running time the dis- the ascent up yeah. to that point i watched the entire movie i went back and watched it again and trying to duplicate the cinematic experience let's put my phone in the other room get my beverages all prepared i don't have to get up and leave mm-hmm. and i can tell you that um the trouble came only from that mm-hmm. the, the, this and, and it solidifies this notion that there are artists in any field of art that are working at a higher level and that's i think simply what what Herzog did, what Tarantino did with Reservoir Dogs, we could just go on down the list mm-hmm. of these like bright and shiny moments that kind of change everything for the people that are paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more in this film than I, I, I don't mean to offend anybody. I think listeners of our podcast won't be offended that a general filmmaking audience can't appreciate because the general film... Film-going audience. Yeah, yeah. Film-going audience can't appreciate because the filmmaking community is not giving them more. And that's where I think you elevate to cinema, and that's where I think this film certainly belongs. There's no medicine-taking when you watch it appropriately. I felt like I was having to take my medicine, but that was my fault for not giving the film the attention that I should have been giving it. It it requires a certain amount from you as a viewer to, you know... At the you know at the time this would be a big ask, but now not as much. But you know it, it kind of requires you to put your trust in Herzog, and that you know the first hour, as banal as it may seem, is going to pay off. You yeah. know, uh, well, and it's a and it's especially big ask given that this is a first time film, right? Yeah. I mean, so it, at the time that would have been. Tough. Now the fact that this played the Berlin Film Festival, yeah, that audience that, is going to be looking right, exactly. for this kind of, you know, I mean, yeah. it makes sense why this film succeeded the way it did, but it succeeded, I think, first as a festival film and then as a film that made its way out into the international market. Was shown here to some extent, though I, it wasn't a huge international hit, it, you know. But it, it did fact, get seen received, by audiences. Uh, not great reviews from the New York Times. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it was, was that, it was a mixed review. I would say it had some positives like in a, there. It was like a two out of five stars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. I think you're right, Joe. Like, the, w- what you say, I, I agree with that this is not a general, just any film goer is going to be able to step into it and enjoy it kind of film. This is a film that you have to go into with a certain kind of openness or you know, if you need to, a little bit of maybe uh, a little bit of uh, previous study to to get yourself ready for it. Carlos kind of teed us up here with some well, of that stuff. We all live busy lives, and when you when the three of us lock the episode together and know that these are the two films that we're going to watch, and if it's a new release that comes out on Friday, I got to watch this one between Friday and you know, yeah. I had no time to watch that to watch that a second time. Yeah, but I felt like I was going to do a disservice to the film if I didn't 
yeah. try to have a better experience with it. Mm-hmm. I also think it speaks to the notion, as I said earlier, that there's a lot to chew on with this film. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of thematic work in this film that we will certainly see in Herzog's, you know, almost his entire career. Yeah. And Descent into Madness is one of them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, the frivolity of war is one of them. Yeah. And that's certainly demonstrated here. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys have a paid vacation in a Grecian island. Must be nice. Uh, but but because it's in the middle of a war, they can't even appreciate it themselves. Right. Yeah. And then, of course, man versus nature. And yeah. I do want to say that I own chickens, and the hypnotization is 100% accurate. That is a real thing. <laughs> I haven't you, tried to You can the draw cir- the line in, fr- in front of it? Yeah, it- I've always seen it done where you they're in dirt and you draw a line in the dirt. Oh, interesting. And they will just go limp until you wipe the line away. Huh. And when they wipe the line away, don't don't wipe near their, ha- their face first because they become very aggressive when yeah. they leave this state. Huh. In the film, they also talk about drawing a circle and the chickens will run in a circle. I have not tried that, no, nor would I, because that just seems mean. Yeah. The hypnotization just seems like a nice nap. Yeah, <laughs> That's a good point. I kind of wish I could draw a line and just, and just relax. Yeah. Hey, Aaron, will you draw a line? <laughs> <laughs> will you do it for me? Yeah, hypnotize me. Fun fact, Herzog himself is uh, afraid of chickens. He he, yeah. find, he finds the flatness of their faces off-putting. Well, my they grandmother was out. afraid was, of chickens too. I, I think it's I pretty common. I swear, in some of the, I was watching some clips and stuff. I th- there was something that he was talking about chickens and yeah. staring into their eyes yeah. and, and like the sort of vapidness yeah. or, the, or the, the, <laughs> the absolute like spectacle of their dumbness. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's almost exactly what he said. <laughs> Which is you know that's a perfectly hurts like that's and that's what I love about. Almost all Herzog films, including the two that we've covered before, certainly Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, but but then, you know, Signs of Life as well, that, like, he just, he looks at things a little bit differently, right? No doubt. Like, a lot of people yeah. would have interest in that idea of tell the story of a man descending into madness when stuck in this assignment that he has no interest in and mm-hmm. is totally isolated. And I feel like 99% of those filmmakers would color by the numbers that you would expect them to, right? Thriller. Like much closer to what Kubrick did. And, yeah. I, and that's not saying like Kubrick is a uh, hack. you know, hack or something. <laughs> Although I have, I have gone on record about The Shining on this podcast. That's true. But, Fuck The Shining. But, but the point is, is like there's a predictable way to do this. Herzog almost never does things the predictable way. No. He has a different way of looking at things. So to him, that it made sense to spend two-thirds of the film in a relatively slow kind of almost almost hypnotizing the audience. Like, are we the chickens? Is he drawing the line for us to yeah. just kind of lull us into oh, this sure. kind of... I imagine deep. that uh, some some academic has done the study of yeah. this film that's showing a lulling sense of yeah. re- repetition, even if the action is changing. Because I think that's, that's what's going on to a certain extent until you're awakened out yeah. of it by this burst of activity that just... Okay, now we got to deal with this. Where did this come from? Higher we... level, higher level. I, I think I would definitely recommend people see this, but I think that you're watching it as his first film from an academic point of view, and not a. Um, yeah, yeah. The film we're about to talk about, I think, is where I might take a new Herzog view or two before I take them. Yeah, here. I mean, that's another question. Would I ever pick this as the first thing to show somebody I by Werner no. Herzog? I don't think I would either. I mean, unless there was like, say, a retrospective of his films, like the Draft House was doing like a series and they were going to show up and I'd say like, yeah, we should just go see the films. That might Go see all, yeah. But but even the the existence of the imaginary event that you just described is we're paying homage to a master 
right. of uh, you know a higher level filmmaker. Let's watch his first film, even if it's not his most visually stunning, although it is visually stunning. Even if it's not his most complicated, even though it is very complicated. Mm-hmm. But you're, now you're beginning to see the the spark of a career, and I always love that. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 great to see the origins of filmmakers, especially yeah. when, like, as we were saying at the beginning, this is a film that even though it is his first and it was celebrated in its moment, has largely been overshadowed by a lot of these other projects that have had more ostentatious, you know, him throwing himself on cactuses, him pulling out guns. Him eating a shoe. Him eating a shoe over here. Uh, an like, interview. All I mean. of these stories that come along with these later films, it makes sense that this got eclipsed, and I understand it, but I think if you're somebody who ha- at this point has seen a couple Werner Herzog films and has appreciated them, yeah, do yourself the favor. It's Watch this. It's currently available uh, with on your Amazon Prime, Amazon Prime, yeah, Prime yeah. Yeah. fees. So you can help send Jeff Bezos into space by yeah. watching this movie yeah. right now. <laughs> where, where he belongs, far away from us. Yeah. Uh, um, so we're all we're all recommending the film with those caveats. Yeah, okay. well, yeah. I think under the the expectation, like if you're listening to this right now and you've never seen a Herzog film, I think all of us agree. Don't make this your first. Don't make this your first. Maybe but, we'll recommend what your first should be at, towards the end. There you go. Of, of yeah. this episode yeah. in general. Now, um, do you have more you want to say about the film? No, because I was going to ask if you haven't had a Weihestefaner beer from a brewery that's been around since 1040, do you think this is the first one you would point your uh, your beer drinking friends to? I think that if you're talking about a German brewery, like a one that's like in Germany and shit, um, <laughs> not just... One of them. Not yeah, just, no, I know what you mean. Not just one that fo- that follows the laws. Reinheitsgebot. Reinheitsgebot, yeah. yeah, thank you. Uh, I'll never, I'll never those... be able to say that unless I say it right after you said it. We, we have... <laughs> We have breweries in the States, micro uh, craft breweries that have tried to take the German tradition and translate it to, you know, but no, this is old school German. Did you ever watch that uh, show Brew Brothers on Netflix? I didn't. You did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you guys dissuaded me from it. I yeah, think you it said was it okay. Wasn't good. Oh, uh, okay. I mean, I watched it pretty quickly. It's not amazing, but one of the brothers, the pretentious one, I think, is the one that yeah. he's trying to push the Reinheitsgebot. Oh, okay, that uh, makes on, sense. On the other brother, anyway. Um, I think if you're going to go there, uh-huh. a Hefeweizen's a good style to start with. Yeah. It's like going to an Italian restaurant and ordering the spaghetti and and meatballs or meat sauce as your first dish. You're like, okay, yeah. this is the lit. This is the litmus test for. Yeah. An Italian restaurant. If you fuck this up, then I don't want to try anything else on your That's menu. Good point. That's a good point. Um, so I think this, or maybe like a really crisp pilsner, would be. If mm. I was a German, a German brewery, what am I going to try first? Yeah. I'd probably go in one of those. I personally would lean this way though, because I'm a fan of, I'm a big fan of this style, and I always mm. have been from. The beginning of my craft beer journey. Yeah. The Hefeweizen was always a, a go-to for Yeah, me. it's a big gateway drug for craft beer folks, yeah. is Hefeweizen. I think this one's pretty good. I yeah, agree. I think that it's all about managing your expectations. If what I'm looking for is a thick, rich, high ABV German chocolate cake stout, then I would never drink this <laughs> beer because this is going to be a crisp, clean, no-nonsense, frill-free frill Hefeweizen. Yeah. Yes. And if that's the style uh, description, this nails it. It Real nails beer. it. And, you, you know, the only thing that these breweries that have been around since 1040 and some of the other German breweries we've had that have been around since the 1500s and yeah. 1400s, the only thing that's going to mess them up is the um, inferiority of the pr- of the base that they purchased to make the same recipe. Yeah. Uh, and unless 
if that, if that doesn't happen, then it's going to be as crisp and as clean, and this is going to be the kind of beer that when I get to Germany and go to the pub, what do they call a pub? A tavern in Germany? Oh, that I mean, they have to have a good German word for it. I and mean. I get a home-style German beer. I hope this is the first one that I yeah. get. It's delicious and crisp and clean, and I could have had two or three of them. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. Now, I think I probably just who I am, what I tend to get drawn towards, I would probably go more the Pilsner route if I was, say, visiting Germany and I went to the brewery and I wanted to try what... I, I would probably start there because yeah. it's going to be a little bit lighter in body. It's going to be a little bit crisper. It's going to be a little bit more snappy and, and bitter than this. I like Hefeweizens, but Hefeweizens, to me, there's always a sweetness. It's a wheat beer, so it has a little bit more of a sweet body to it. Um, the banana element... This is good. I think this is very balanced. I've had Hefeweizens where I feel like it goes too far into the almost like fruit beer right, realm. Right, right, right. And even Which might be audience demand because somewhere along the line it became you have to put a piece of citrus on the side. That's true too. That's true too. And, and, uh, and yeah, so it's been kind of... But I think, you know, going back to something that I think is really a classic version of the style um, that... I feel like is really balanced, really well done. I've had this beer before. It's been a while, but um, I remember liking it then. I really am enjoying it now. This is one that I would happily point people to and say, hey, if you haven't had any German beers, go pick up the Weihestefaner uh, Hefeweizen or Hefeweiss beer, as they call it. You, you know, it's, it's a good place to start. And Carlos, you and I got out of having to say the name of the brewery each. So yes, I'm fantastic. Very thankful for that. Um, another thing that I'm thankful for is that there is still a second half to this episode. Ah. We're not done talking about Werner Herzog just no, yet. No, we've just um, scratched the proverbial surface here. We, yeah. Truly, uh, we are going to jump four years into the future and take a look at another, the third. Uh, film and feature film in Werner Herzog's filmography coming up after the break. I'm just excited to talk because I mean, Signs of Life, fun, fun way to start the episode. Um, great opportunity to to see the early part of, of this, uh, you know, cinema luminaries career. I'm excited to dive into. I think the film that really made the splash on the international stage for him that oh. that sort of cemented him as a presence in filmmaking. But before we do that, we're gonna drink some more beer. Yeah, less talking, more beering. <laughs> and this beer isn't actually a German beer, so I'm kind of cheating here a little bit. But I, but I feel like the connection, uh, given the flavor, Joe kind of mentioned in the first half, what? it is a German chocolate cake stout. So what? Got a got a dessert stout here, it. guys. Um, it is Sandy. from Great Basin Brewing. They are out of Nevada, out of Reno, Nevada. It's eight and a half percent. It's you know they call it a dark and decadent pastry stout brewed with cacao, coconut, and pecans, together with the perfect amount of milk sugar, giving it a sweet and velvety finish. A fresh take on a classic dessert, and they call it Struhl Peter. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that is actually a reference to a children's book character 
um, which translates roughly to either shock-headed Peter or shaggy Peter. And it's sort of a story about this character that sort of does, I think, makes mistakes and they end up, you know, kind of being these like moral stories. But um, he's clearly depicted on the can. I'm Striking can art. At, a, at an image of him on a book cover. And, and they've obviously copied the original or at least the 1917 illustrations well, there's, uh, from the book. Little cartoon graphics of almonds and chocolate. And look at that, Carlos. Ha- big halves of coconut. Mm. Being the slut for coconut you are, I hope you're excited. We, ho- we hope so. We hope so. 8.5. 8.5. So so we're going to get some of this into our glasses, mm. um, and we're going to fortify ourselves for talking about, like as I, I've kind of teed it up, I think the film that put this guy really on the international stage. The coconut is heavy. You're getting on that on the nose. nose, all right. Very. It passes the nose. sniff test. You mentioned, Carlos, that, or maybe it was you, David, that um, Herzog had collaborated with Kinski as an actor for about, about five times. Five times, yeah. This is the uh, first one. Um, Klaus Kinski. One of the uh, the more uh, fabled ones as well as far as like all the lore that the comes onset. from the onset interaction. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, in this film, the year is 1560 and a battalion of uh, Spanish conquistadors and the enslaved indigenous people that they have with them are marching down from the newly conquered Incan Empire in the Andes Mountains into the jungles in search of the fabled country of El Dorado, the city of the gold. City, city of El Dorado. So after, I guess, taking the country, they're now going after some of the riches as depicted in you know some of the folklore of the area. Um, Which was created by the natives to fool the conquistadors, am I correct? That's that? my understanding. Yeah. yeah, or at least I think the film says that. I think the film the, does say that. Yeah. They're, just, yeah, they're just fucking with them. So the film, <laughs> the film sets that up with a red and white, like a red background, white text title card, and then it goes into the opening credits where we don't hear a word uttered, but we see this battalion of the conquistadors in their conquistador, you know, metal helmets, and which yeah. is you know how they dress. A crazy opening, and sequence. some Spanish. Uh, royalty or at least wealthy or landowners uh, and they're you know females that are in like the beautiful garb yeah. being carried in their little you know four guys carrying the yeah. the, the the little carriage down these rocky impossible to navigate when you're in like good hiking gear you right. know trails and I mean, that's the setup narrow sure yeah the, with like a like 1500 a sheer cliff hugely steep yeah. mountain terrain very narrow walkways and they're getting their uh, their, their, their livestock they've and, got a cannon that they're right. lugging around exactly. and it's crazy exactly. and the cannonballs yeah um, and what you see immediately is just nonsense I mean you're seeing this notion of futility you know um uh Trudging people, through the mud. People in a part of nature that they don't belong, certainly with the things that they're trying to do. Yeah. But um, okay, so there's, there's also the constant threat of indigenous people. That's talked about throughout, you know, that the, 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 there are Indians, they're called in the... Some have been enslaved by them. They, they've enslaved some sure. who are helping them along the way, but there are others who are hiding in the jungle danger, who yeah, are constantly... Yeah. Um, and with their food down to nothing, the leader of this expedition says, we're going to quit this is stupid but what we'll do is we're going to send down another battalion a smaller battalion on rafts down the river for a week if you're not back in a week we're going to assume that it's you know this is a lost cause and we're out of here and in that 
battalion that's sent is Aguirre, uh, played by Kinski, who is second in Klaus com- Kinski. Yeah, Klaus Kinski, mm-hmm. thanks. Uh, who is second in command on this expedition. Um, along with, and there's some other characters there, one of the characters' wives, but there is a... Uh, uh, the the army guy and the Spanish noble guy mm-hmm. and then of course the priest because you have to have in a, in a proper Spanish you know plunder of the of a country you have to have mm-hmm. those three elements and uh, then Carvajal. you know then mayhem ensues as Aguirre creates a mutiny takes control of the entire thing you know pushes pa- way past the weak barrier because for him the city of gold it will be a brand new they'll be the richest you know new government and they can create a government and it's it's there's a lot of madness in, in everything that i'm saying but that's kind of exactly the kingdom. tone and the mood that yeah. a puts out and consistently citing cortez as his justification for continuing down his his uh look at what cortez did in mexico yeah his yeah. path and like that's us we're gonna be we're gonna be the new promising them like stations in his new kingdom and mm-hmm. stuff and mm-hmm. well, let me it, say this up top this film's in color as opposed to our first film it is. it is gorgeous and lush and the cinematography that we saw in the first we can certainly see here and that's just a good starting point no Act- matter what the film looks beautiful acted in english dubbed in german uh-huh which is very frustrating to me uh <laughs> i think my only gripe with the film is is the dialogue recording element or yeah well because they shot it in english uh-huh because that was the most common language on the set yeah so then just do the adr in english yeah well, what well, gives but, my guy? But the main performers, you know, Kinski, yeah, and, I know. You know, they're, they're German, so it, it, I, I hear what you're saying. It just doesn't it, make I, it, it makes if more the sense. The final product to me, is German, speak German when you're shooting it. <laughs> to yeah. me, that adds to the strange dreaminess of this film. And like, to me, I didn't right know that from, until you just right said from it. That <laughs> yeah, opening, right from that opening shot, like it, J- Joe was talking about, like when we see them coming down this mountain trail, um, and and we still don't like you know the way that those first shots kind of unfold you don't really fully understand the scope of it until it kind of moves around a bit and you see yeah and it's just i remember seeing this film like i said in the first half you know this was the first herzog film i saw i saw it in a film class films a film class that did its screenings at night in a dark theater and i remember going in Sitting down, not knowing what to think. I mean, I think we had read a little something on New German Cinema, you know, that, that t- talking about Herzog and, and uh, um, Fassbinder and Vendors and th- this idea, these, you know, new voices emerging out of the kind of post-war Germany who were... And, Inspired by the French New Wave. Yeah, and, th- and I'm like, okay, so what is this going to be, you know? And, I, and it just... It was like being put into a dream state yeah. for yeah. 90 minutes yeah. where the music, right? So here we have Popova from, uh, you know, Carlos mentioned uh, Florian Fricka, who was it, the piano player in the Signs of Life film as a character. Here he's composing very, the score. A very striking figure in his own right, yeah. visually. Yeah, very, you know, just like Score matters, guys. And it does. It score does. matters. And, and in this film, it executes. And oh, yeah. I think that just as Herzog's collaborations with uh, Klaus Kinski really paid off over mm-hmm. the years, and they did, I mean, obviously some very notable works together, I think that Popova is 
the perfect choice in music for Herzog's particular style in that Herzog is very restrained. He's very minimal in terms of, uh, you know, the dialogue in the films is kind of sparse. You know, he's giving you a lot of visual mm-hmm. things and uh, he's creating tone and atmosphere and it's not super exposition heavy the way that Popova's music is very atmospheric. Yeah. It's very ethereal and they use all sorts of interesting instruments from around the world to create these kind of like sonic landscapes that the way that maybe watching people walk through these incredibly harsh yet beautiful uh, landscapes for five minutes to start a film hypnotizes you a bit. And then obviously, I mean, there's a lot of other stuff that does that in this film as well. The music is exactly in the same world as what Herzog is creating visually. Yeah. And I mean, in this and in, in Nosferatu, I mean, they, it just, it pairs perfectly. Yeah. That is a perfect pairing, not a terrible taste of it. I, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, it isn't that one really helps the other. It's that together they just work perfectly. Yeah. It's just, well, so as I said before, you're seeing a work of art here, you know, and, and you know, let's get this out of the way. I always enjoy on this show when our silly pursuit here gets me to watch these films that have been on my list for this one over 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I always avoid, the, not always, I sometimes avoid films where I feel like I just got to check this one off a list and I got to take my medicine. You know, yeah. like the, the, if I'm going to be... I feel that with something. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, so for me, when I'm watching Aguirre for the first time or... or what did you watch the first time in the last couple of months that was, you know, you got to really check a good box off your list? Oh, I'm sure there was something. I'd have to go back and look at the episodes. It's did you see right Citizen now. Kane for the first time when we were talking no, about the show? I saw no. that in high school. David, do you remember that? Like some uh, film? I, I do. I mean, I think it's happened a couple times. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, like, the, I'm remembering back to when you said I'd always wanted to watch Obvious Well, Signs Childs. of Life, even. I mean, the, yeah. yes. There are these films that I know I'm, I so want to watch. So when the show allows us to me to watch a film that I haven't seen when I saw a good times for the first time, you know, and Carlos had expected clearly put out expectations that this is a fantastic movie. Well, when you get these films with these pedigrees that have had what 48 years, this film Mm. to develop its pedigree and to win its awards and to establish its reputation. And you finally see it for the first time. You believe as a critic that your, your opinion must be very, very high so that you can, you know, be in the club. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and what you were referring to was I had never seen anything Kurosawa. That's right. Before oh, okay. we right. did uh, uh, Seven Samurai. Yeah. I had also never seen a Thomas Vinterberg film, and uh, which it wasn't nearly as notable as Kurosawa, No Shade. And I had also never seen Enter the Dragon, which was another oh, kind of check. Yeah, it, it happens. So there was a few, but, but Kurosawa was the big yeah. one where it was one I always knew. Uh-huh. You got to see this. And if you haven't seen it, you're watching your first one. You feel like you're taking this big bite of this big meal that has been nothing but expectations. Yeah. You're, but so, it, but in in that particular case, Seven Samurai lives up to those expectations. And in this case, uh, you know, Aguirre Wrath of God, for whatever reason, I didn't really know about until pretty recently. Mm-hmm. Even when we did Bad Lieutenant Port of Call, even when we did Into the Abyss especially when we did Into the Abyss, because that one was first, mm-hmm. I knew Herzog more as a documentary filmmaker mm-hmm. 
and was almost a little surprised at how much narrative work he had done. Because, you know, like I said at the top of the episode, he ebbs and flows between the two in a way that well, most and, do not. And I think in the last two decades, it's been more tilted it's, towards documentary. Yeah, yeah which mean, is more of the stuff I'm familiar with. He has made narrative films, but yeah. it, it is definitely, in the latter half of his career, it's tilted more towards documentary. Yeah, and... Right, well, so let me just wrap it up. I feel like this deserves every accolade it ever got. I mean, this film is doing so much. And the idea that it's only 90 minutes, that was the 95, whatever. That was the biggest shock when it first started. I thought I was about to watch a three-hour opus given the reputation that this thing had ahead of it. Right. Yeah, no, you know, right from the outset, putting you into that kind of like trance-like state, I think, you know, Carlos, what you said about the soundtrack is right. Uh, You know, it has this like droning, almost like ethereal kind of... uh, quality i mean it makes the jungle feel like this church of some sort it, it's just it, it's you know you were talking joe in the first half about like how man versus nature or man in nature is a theme that herzog keeps returning to and that's right here i mean this idea of these explorers you know going on this expedition to who at their time were a powerful powerful force oh sure absolutely who, who nothing were... can overcome us right Right. Oops. <laughs> but but exactly. But then, you know, on this fool's errand of trying to find this totally fictional city that doesn't exist um, or, or land or whatever they think of it as, um, that they're going to be able to get, like, you know, and you know that, but they don't know that necessarily. In fact, it seems like they very much buy into this idea yeah. that, that's been put out there. But knowing it's all folly no, and, and seeing how even if it was a good mission They've set themselves up for failure because of all the encumbrances they put upon themselves with the, you know, the extra, uh, you know, the women that they're carrying on these, you carriages know, carriages whatever, that yeah. you were describing. And, you know, like all of this stuff that they're, the gear that they're bringing with them, the extra food for the royals, you know, for, for the for the regal party members and all this. It's just insanity. You're seeing this little microcosm of society you know, of, uh, of a Western society kind of like moving along and how ridiculous it is that, okay, we're all wading through the mud here, but y'all are the slaves. We're, <laughs> we're the soldiers. Here are the, you know, aristocrats. the sort of like aristocrats. Yeah. Get that. And we're going to keep that stratification here. And that means the aristocrat will never lift a finger and he will always eat well. And that means that the soldiers will do... Count out kernels of corn. Right. <laughs> and and you grunt laborers are going to have to, you know, do whatever the hell we tell you to. Right. And, you know, it's... So you're seeing this microcosm of society and this, like, traveling roadshow trying to create civilization in this place where they don't see it existing... Um, and, and the folly of it and, and the sort of madness of it that's baked into that very plan is totally embodied by Aguirre, you know, and, and this character who certainly uses the system to his own advantage. Oh, absolutely. He's scheming, he's manipulating the entire time. The relationship between the regal and the religious Mm -hmm. and the soldiers Mm -hmm. better than I guess anybody as far as executing a plan that I don't know the plan being uh, the leader of the expedition eventually but I don't know if he knew that that was his plan as an audience member you you might assume that it is yeah. but how it's executed and the players that, that are there to execute right. it's just so masterfully done well and I think that's one of the other things that you see is kind of a consistent element of Herzog's to to an extent I guess, I guess maybe I'd, I'd want to do a more in-depth study to say it. but even just comparing these two films 
he likes to give you these characters that that make these moves, but not necessarily explain their motivations, right? Like we don't understand why is Agira driven this way. Um, we don't really ever get any sort of backstory to him that explains to us why he would be so willing to put him and his daughter and all these people on the line for, you know. But nonetheless, in this case, I think it's Kinski's performance, we buy into it, right? I mean, we see this guy and he is just seething in, in, in a certain way, like under the surface. You can just see him like boiling and ready to strike. And eventually he does start striking and lashing out more uh, violently. But for the longest time, you're just seeing this kind of cunning, manipulative guy who you can sense has this real intensity beneath the surface. But that, you know, in part is what I think makes the lore behind this film so interesting when you hear about yeah. the relationship that these two people had uh, throughout the making of this film. Yeah, Herzog said that he used to he would rile Kinski up before they shot mm-hmm. so that he would have these big you like know outbursts of yeah. anger and so that by the time they were rolling he was still fuming but like a little out of energy so he was a little more subdued than being super big um <laughs> Herzog's description of Kinski is that he makes Marlon Brando look docile <laughs> uh, Marlon Brando having like a reputation of being very difficult right um and, and, you know, I think you can, I think you, when you know that that was kind of how he dealt with him in this film, you can see it a little bit because Kinski does look kind of like he's worn down in, in a certain way. Yeah. But it, it, I don't know. It kind of on, on screen, Frantic. on screen, it works a little bit in the reverse in a way where it looks like he's trying to hold it in rather yeah. than having just let it out. Um, but the performance that Herzog's able to 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 get out of him in this movie is very very good, and I mean this movie lives or dies on the back of Kinski, him being you know obviously the main focus of it. Huh. And uh, I'm thinking about that. I don't know if that's true. I think if I think if Klaus I think Kinski it's is not I don't think it's. I wouldn't put it above. Like I mean, I think score. You've already pointed out. I think this movie setting. wouldn't work without it. The setting, oh, being in the jungle, actually shooting on there, location. Still okay, but he does. Part of the cinematography I love is you're seeing the water splattering. They could yeah. not stop and wipe off the lens on no. the camera. They weren't gonna if they wanted to get these shots, they were gonna happen the way they right. happened. Yeah, and I mean a lot of things did happen the way that it happened in this movie. Like the plot point where the rafts get taken away, yeah. that exists because on set the rafts were Taken Track away by, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, oh, by a flooded river. Oh, yeah. like it's that a scene happened. where they wake up and the tide has come through and taken the rafts and, off. And they have to rebuild them, and that is literally yeah. what happened on set. It was not in the original script. Right. And so they wrote it in there, and it yeah. became a plot point. I, and to kind of defend my previous point, I don't think that without Kinski, this movie fails. Right. But I don't oh, think it ascends the way that it does. I think I agree I think with that. He is. I think it's you good need everything. without you him. You need everything, but it's he is great one of him. those elements that has to be. Well, there. it's one of the, it's one of the reasons why the movie transcends is that all the elements are there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even the minor actors are so so yeah. good. I mean, oh, yeah. no, there does not seem to be an amateur among them. Even um, though I think. That there were many. <laughs> I think sure that there were. No, you're, you're, you're right. But in terms of the actual performance, I, I hear what you're yeah, saying, no, no, Joe. No, no, like sure. they, you brought up Brando. One of my films we haven't done it on the show is Apocalypse Now. Top five. Never seen it. Changed my life when I saw it. You know that kind of thing. I've watched it twenty times. I've watched influenced the, by this film heavily. Right. 
it makes me so angry that I haven't seen this movie before now uh, because in all the research that I did, I know I ran across a gear for, for, for Apocalypse, Apocalypse Now. now yeah. I know I ran across this movie. and I, In the style in which it's shot. Take your goddamn medicine because sometimes yeah. it just isn't that painful to do. And I should have seen it makes this you movie feel better. 30, 20 years ago and yeah. my life would have been more enriched. But, but the Apocalypse Now is not missing. The reason why it is such an influence there is because... It's the same exact movie. I mean, it's the same exact <laughs> uh, a plot conceit of as we go into the heart further of darkness, further, yes. as we go away from the the commander that put us on this mission, but as we move away from that and into darkness, we're moving into anarchy. Yeah. yeah. And that's what uh, Kinski's character, uh, Gire, is. It, it makes the movie so much fun. Though one of the things I love about this film probably even more so than than uh i was going to say heart of darkness but apocalypse now is i mean it's so clear that the 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 anarchy and the madness is coming from agira and not the jungle you know what i mean it's not driving him mad he is bringing the madness with it like it's it's coming out because the jungle is stripping away everything from around him. One could argue just, that there's an uh, increased level of desperation as crew members are dying, yeah, as, yeah, yeah. as food no. stores are waning, as, you know... But that, do you take... So no. The, the, let me ask this. No, Do you take right. the speech at the end that he's making to the monkeys on the raft, which is just one of the most phenomenal scenes in, right. in cinema history. He's down to a handful of people. And, well, none. none. There's no nobody. people when at he's that at point. the very end, he is yeah. the lone no, right. survivor. Right. He right. is just pacing that raft. And it, it, like what he's saying about wanting to start a pure race with his, with his daughter. I mean, this is like something that I feel like was the inner core of this guy just bursting forth. It wasn't something the jungle put there. It was something that he, that the jungle stripped away all the other trappings and he was just now all the, he's all the artifice. Yeah. I'll tell you what, I will definitely ruminate over that as I watched again, because this is going to be one that I watch. You again. have to see it more than once. And, 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 part and of, see it on the big, like, I would yes. love to see it in a theater. Rewatching this again, I loved it. Don't get me wrong. Watching it on my living room television, happy experience and all that. I even tried to get one of my daughters to watch it with me. She she wouldn't, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> probably for the best. But but uh, if this gets shown on any big screen anywhere near me, yes, I will buy a we'll ticket. Go I will sure. go there. So, I, I feel like we're wrapping up. There's so much we didn't talk about the the, the religious you know uh, exploration here. The yeah. two indigenous folks that well, like I said, it's this microcosm of society that's traveling along. So you see, like would you know one of the great lines there, and I'm not going to get it right, but you know what is it like the it's the priest and he's saying that you know the job of the priest is to go with the strong like you have to like we bend to the will of whoever's strong because we want the faith to survive and unless we're aligned with who is in power we're not gonna and you that sort of political calculation that goes on the reason that Agira is able to manipulate people against it like getting that aristocrat um, to go along with the scheme because he knows like, well, I'm kind of, you know, yeah, if I want to be pampered this way and, and, and allowed to live, then I'm going to have to go along with this as long as I can. It's it's just really wonderful. And, and, uh, David, and then there's a horse on the raft. The horse is annoying him. <laughs> he orders, get that horse away from yes. me. It's annoying me. The, they dump it in the river. The horse is gone. Yeah. The crewmates say... 
minimally we could have eaten we, that yeah. wheat <laughs> from the horse yeah. meat. Yeah. The next scene, quick cut. That aristocrat that made that poor decision had been groated with yeah. a tourniquet around his neck, yeah. and he's laying on the ground. The king is dead. The king, the emperor is dead. <laughs> the movie just devolves into chaos, mm. but it's so beautifully shot and beautifully executed that you're just along for this amazing, amazing ride. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I think that Palomino Zagire, we're doing a beer in a movie event there. Well, maybe we should do it anyway. I was going to say we should just get the theater and, yeah. and do whoa, it. Whoa, that whoa, would be fun. Um, Are we serious here? I, it, it can, yeah, it can be done. Of us can pitch together the two hundred eighty-five dollars or whatever it takes to get it done. I think we could. I think we should. All right. Um, you know, and even though this movie does kind of have a similar. Uh, switch that gets flipped as Signs of Life does where, you know, I mean, it is more gradual, but then once, when it really hits, like, okay, this guy has actually lost it and it isn't just overly ambitious is when the monkeys are on the raft and it's just him by himself. But it is one that I think you can go back and watch again and in hindsight see the moments where the madness starts to seep in yeah. uh, to him. In well, an in interesting it, way. So it kind of plays as both The Shining, which fuck that movie, and Signs of Life. You know, <laughs> Shining's incredible. Which I think no, you, and you're in I, I, good, good point, Carlos. And I think again, another reason I love this film is it shows you. Yes, did this character ultimately go mad? Sure, but what if everything had gone pretty well? He still would have been mad under the surface. Like he was still yeah. pursuing an insane dream. But he might have been able to pull something off that would have allowed him to be in power. And th- that sort of, when you get that insight and you're like, well, that's how people get into power. Yeah. They're willing to pull this shit to be able to get everybody to back them in these crazy schemes. And then eventually it works out well enough that they're able to keep it. I mean, look, I don't think it's that far-fetched to compare Aguirre to Donald Trump. I mean, like, as soon as you started talking about that, that was the first thing I thought of. You know, like, the the person who is insane enough to believe that they are, you know, sort of God's answer, the wrath of God. He believes he is the wrath of God. When he looks into... God is using him as an instrument. When Klaus Kinski looks into the camera and says that, oh, that shit is badass. Like, it's a intense fucking... Really, yeah. really good. I mean, to, we have it, the option to do Holy Mountain or this movie for our event that we're talking about. <laughs> oh, Which that, one do we do? Are, the, uh, the, I don't know. That, that might have to be. Uh, Do you have feature. some Holy Mountain vibes during this when you were yeah, watching it? Yeah, for I sure. Do. I mean, it, I think if we're talking about the films that we've watched that have had the most sort of psychedelic elements to them, these, these kind of. are right up there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the, those two, Holy Mountain and Nagire. We'll do so, a triple feature. We'll do those, and then we'll just throw in, I don't know. Jason just, versus Freddy? Yeah. <laughs> Jason X. Jason X. I was going to say any given David Lynch movie. But. Mm. So it sounds like we would wholeheartedly suggest that people watch this one, and since they're so jazzed at being introduced to Herzog or revisiting Herzog, they'd go back to Signs of Life because you didn't want to see the dude's first film. So... Obviously, we all really like this movie. Yeah. To, I guess as kind of like the punctuation at the end, have you, either of you kind of landed on where are you going to start somebody on their Herzog journey if they've never seen a Werner Herzog film? 
Given that this was my first, I would not hesitate to point somebody here. And I would, I would probably give him a little bit of backstory. Like, well, it's actually his third film. But, yeah. you know, it, it, it was his first uh, outing with Klaus Kinski, who became important and they made other films together. I wouldn't want somebody to start with one of the later Kinski films. I would want them to see this first collaboration, I feel like, before they saw any of the other ones. I'd send a horror person to, Nes- not to Nosferatu just because that makes okay. sense. But otherwise, I would say start here. And then I, I pitched this episode as a um, the movies we haven't seen episode, mm-hmm. and I wanted to pair it with Fitzcarraldo because I have not seen that either. It just, I think uh, it's good you saw this first. Herzog's a whole. Well, I trust you a lot on that kind of stuff, David, so when you, I think you were the one that said, let's do Signs of Life instead, I, I just go along because... I don't trust him quite as much, but I'll go with that. <laughs> nice. A bit of a well, shifty character, but he always I have my moments. And, and Fitzcarraldo has like the, the benefit. If we ever do that one, I would be inclined to want to pair it with Burden of Dreams because there is a great documentary that was made about the making of the film. That's, right. When, was there a documentary about the making of Aguirre? There's a documentary called My Best Fiend yeah. that Herzog made about, about his Kinski, relationship yeah. with Kinski that does cover this film. Okay. Another way, yeah. well, I'm going to watch that. Is that on uh, uh, I think. It is on Amazon Fantastic. Now. Yeah, a lot I of the Herzog stuff tonight. is. So anybody who's listening, if you decide to make this dive down the rabbit hole, even though we're telling you you should do it on the big screen if possible, watching these on Amazon Prime would be a great place to start. I intend yeah. on talking about the streaming that we all got used to during COVID and how it's made us worse film watchers mm. in our after hours today. All right. Not that anybody cares, but my recommendation would be Nosferatu. <laughs> All right. <laughs> because no, I, cared. Uh, I cared. Because I think the subject matter is familiar enough that you could go there with it, you know? Uh, I think the only thing that keeps me from saying that is that it is a remake of a sort, and I, I feel yes. like it. Ah, Defoe in that movie, man. If, if you see. Well, I'm thinking Wait, of, you're thinking I'm of thinking, Shadow no, of a Vampire. Kinski you know, is in that. Never mind, never mind. You're never thinking mind. of... Carlos, please remove that thought. I know you're not going <laughs> to, you motherfucker, to. but please. <laughs> but but anyhow, that, that's why I, I probably put this, but Nosferatu is great, and yeah. I think Shadows a lot of, of people... You're right. If you're a horror fan, then that might be the place for you to start. And so, Carlos, uh, I want to know... Another great, pulp, another great Pulp of uh, score as well. Yes. I want to know, Carlos, you, first of all, what you thought of the Struel Peter. That's the only thing I want to know. This is a German chocolate cake stout. I'll remind everyone it's got chocolate, almond, coconut. Delicious. Well, as I said, up top... Those are pecans, not almonds on the... No, those can. are almonds. No, pecans. 100% almonds. Well, I, they're telling me that they're supposed to be pecans, so the artist... Oh, but drew. I'm saying that these, visually, those are almonds. Yeah, look again now. Do they look like pecans now that I Not told you all. they are? <laughs> no. Uh, right, Great Basin, your can art sucks after all. <laughs> Take back like, my I, I, I gotta go with Carlos on that. They look much they, more like almonds. They do. Um, this is a very good beer, I think. Uh, it's, you know, is it the greatest one that I've ever had? No, it's a little thin, but I, I think that I think all the flavor is there. Yeah. It's it, it in terms of replicating some of the experience of a German chocolate cake, I'm pretty impressed. And and I I'm not a big cake guy in general, but I do like a I'm nice not a big cake guy. Either. I do like a nice little slice of German chocolate cake from it is Aaron's favorite cake. So it, at okay. the very least usually on her birthday we do something German chocolate. I believe themed. you. And he's a good the, husband. I th- I think the coconut is there. The uh, the creamy chocolateness is there. Uh, the, I'm I'm 
I am pleased enough with this that I would happily buy another can. Yeah, I agree with Carlos with the word thin, but not off-puttingly so. It's not one of those beers that's hitting you over the head with all of the adjuncts, Mm. but they are certainly there. And uh, if you can get your hands on it, where did you get your hands on this one, David? This was uh, one of the unnamed okay. uh, delivery this services. This was mailed to us. Yeah. I can't go buy this tonight. No. If I could, I might. It's uh, No, our Nevada nice listeners might be able to get their hands on it pretty easily. Yeah. 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 Uh, good job. <clears throat> great, great basin. In case anybody was wondering, uh, Aguirre Wrath of God was voted on IMDb uh, the best of the Herzog Kinski collaborations. Oh, fantastic. Followed up by Nosferatu. Well, I can only imagine in our after oh, wow. hours tonight that Carlos is going to just school us on Herzog with all the research that he's been up to. I love it that he, right. he went down such a, uh, a, a research pathway with this. It's great. Uh, nope, you got it all at the top of this episode. Right. <laughs> but I, but, but <laughs> he held nothing back, folks. But <laughs> I, no, well, I did, I did watch some of his other stuff. Uh, yeah. that I didn't waste time on the main podcast okay. talking about because we weren't talking about those films. We'll we were talk talking about, about these then. films, but I definitely will talk about it. One of those specifically in the after hours. Uh, man, waited until the very end to mention our Patreon. Um, but before I even get to that, um, let us know. Are you as fascinated by this man as I am? <laughs> he is a very, very interesting guy. Uh, makes great movies as well. Uh, th- this is these are the third and fourth of his films that we've covered. Uh, they certainly won't be the last. Um, and have you had any of? Uh, have you ever had a beer from a thousand year old brewery? <laughs> a nearly thousand year old brewery. Uh, let us know. Get in on the conversation. Uh, you can find us on all your favorite social media channels, twitter.com slash beer movie show, instagram.com slash beer in a movie, facebook.com slash beer movie TX, beer and movie podcast.com. And of course the Patreon, which I just mentioned, patreon.com slash beer in a movie podcast, $5 a month gets you a bonus episode every single week. You can donate less if you like, but you won't get those sweet, sweet bonus apps. And you can donate more if you really got it like that and just want to flex on us. Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. That helps us manipulate the algorithm so that we show up as high as possible in search results so that more people find the show and find new and exciting cinema and craft beer. Until next time. That man is a head taller than me. That may change. Thank you.